you can read it as a warning, and I think that's a very fair reading, or you can read it as, uh, well, this is the worst possible option except for all the other possible options. Um, and both, I think, are fair readings, and both honestly are true. I mean, it's like a crazy, absolutely insane idea that no one would advocate. Welcome to the seventh episode of season two of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. My guest this week is one of the world's most well-known environmental writers. Fifteen years ago, she wrote the seminal work, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature and Climate Change, in which she documents her meeting with top scientists and policymakers all over the world and asks what, if anything, can be done to save our planet. Eight years later, she published the groundbreaking book, The Sixth Extinction, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. The book documents the mass extinction of species all over the world. There have been five comparable crises in the history of life on Earth, the book says, but the sixth is different. It has been caused by us. The book remains a classic to this day and is comparable in its impact to the likes of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Long known for her insightful and thought-provoking political journalism, Elizabeth Colbert's most recent book, Under a White Sky, looks at the spiralling consequence of human attempts to control nature with technology. From interventions like changing the flow of a river in order to carry more waste to a more convenient location, to tapping an aquifer to grow alfalfa in the desert, Colbert looks at the unforeseen consequences of our efforts to manage nature to our advantage. These consequences, she says, lead to ever grander inventions which bring fresh calamities, which require still cleverer interventions. Many of the examples Colbert draws from are, of course, responses to problems of our own making. For example, at one point she documents conversations with scientists who are trying to genetically engineer coral to survive in a hotter world. Yet the reason that ocean temperatures are increasing in the first place is because of the emissions that we put into the atmosphere. When it comes to climate change, the question at the heart of Under a White Sky is essentially whether various experiments in geoengineering are a distraction from cutting emissions, or whether things have gotten so bad that we need to consider these Promethean interventions. I caught up with Elizabeth about this and what our priorities should be when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, action to cut emissions, even though it might not be enough globally, or take the risk of using technology to geoengineer the climate at the potential consequences that could entail. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Colbert. (music) 
Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time uh, with me and with us uh, today. Uh, you're the author of a series of books, uh, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature and Climate Change, uh, The Sixth Extinction, um, for which obviously you won the Pulitzer Prize, and more recently, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Um, your assessment's pretty bleak, uh, I think, of the state of things, and obviously you've got some evidence for that. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I, I'm doing okay. I, I don't think the situation is um, has not improved. Let's just put it that way. Since I started writing about it, um, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, you know, as I'm sure all your listeners are aware, all, all we've done is continue to pour carbon into the atmosphere. Um, I guess the good news is I think, I think there is growing recognition that we can't continue to do this. Um, but, you know, how fast and how dr dramatically we're going to make the switch is is very, you know, very much an open question right now. I'm really interested as someone who, you know, spends a lot of time engaged in climate change policy and uh, science and technology and so on. Um, and knowing that the trend is going in the wrong direction, um, albeit, as you say, with some signs of hope uh, starting to emerge, but nevertheless, the, the overall trend line is still, still pretty bad. How do you kind of keep yourself going in that? Well, I think that, you know, the only thing I can say, which is, you know, sort of maybe it's sort of somewhat banal, but, you know, what 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 choices there? I mean, I, I would, I would pose the same question to you, you know, you're, you spend your life working on these issues. You, you, you know, you have know all the same facts I know. And I, I'm sort of inferring that, you know, you've reached the same conclusion. There's no other choice, but to kind of keep uh, plugging away and hoping that, you know, th that the world does take adequate action in time. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about you know, limiting the damage at this point. We're not talking about um, eliminating it because it's, it's really just too late for that. I have reached the same conclusions personally. I, I, I guess the reason I'm interested in asking this is we've recently had uh, a school strike march uh, or series of marches around Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, and this is the first kind of sign of, um, people getting out on the streets again after the COVID-19 pandemic meant that, that we couldn't, um, but not quite yet back at the level it was at in 2019, where we had huge numbers of, of people out, uh, out on the streets. But it's really apparent uh, with the young people who are leading these marches and who form the majority of the people who are on, on the marches, that there is an increasing sense of kind of anger or desperation and a bit of hopelessness in in kind of their narrative. And again, I can see why, uh, why, but uh, that worries me um, because, you know, that can be disempowering um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of lead, you know, to other things, which, which may actually not be helpful in the long run. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't, we're, we're sort of behind you in the, coming out of lockdown um, phase. So I don't really 
No, but when the ne- when the next big demonstrations will be, if ever. Um, but I, I think, you know, any political movement. I mean, the problem with climate change, honestly, or not the problem. There are so many problems with climate change, but many social movements. You could argue there, you know, there's not the same kind of of time limit on them. You know, they're not. Um, you know, if, if you're fighting for, for justice or equal rights or, you know, obviously the people who are immediately affected and the longer that takes for social change, people's lives are spent in that process. So I don't want to say it doesn't have an impact. Um, obviously it does, but it's not um, making the problem worse. The problem is just sort of staying steady. And in the case of climate change, the problem just gets worse. And at certain points, you know, scientists have warned us uh, that certain thresholds are crossed beyond which, you know, feedbacks take over that are very, very hard to um, stop. And that, I think, puts a, climate change in a special category of, of sort of problems that need to be addressed uh, in, a, in a timely fashion uh, and and the addressing of which is very difficult. I mean, if climate change were easy to solve, I guess one thing I would say is if it were easy to solve, uh, I do think we would be making more progress. It is not easy to solve. And that is an unfortunate fact. I thought you were going to say if it was easy to solve, someone would have fixed it by now. Yeah, well, right. Exactly. Exactly. And we could, we could, we could go fishing. Or- we could move on. We have a lot of other problems, too, that we could use to solve. We do. In, in an article in The New Yorker, uh, you said that you first learned about climate change in the summer of 1988, uh, when I think I was probably doing air guitar to Prince. Um, and and so in in that time, since then, since since the late 80s, when, when it first started to creep into the popular consciousness, uh, the same amount of carbon dioxide has been emitted into the atmosphere since then as in the entire industrial revolution leading up to that point, right? Which is a damning statistic. Yeah, it is. I think of anything, this is the thing that makes me most angry because of course, 1990 was the year that we said globally, actually, we need to start reducing our emissions from, from this year, from 1990. And we've actually emitted more CO2 since 1990 than we have in the entire kind of, industrial revolution up to that point, which is appalling. Do you see an alternative history there? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot of that, and I haven't gone through the numbers to really look at it um, in a very careful way. So I I hope I'm not misrepresenting things. But, you know, a lot of the huge emissions growth in that time, I mean, has been from the developing world has been China, you know, overtaking the U.S. as the world's um, major emitter. And, you know, an alternative history that really, I can certainly see an alternative history in the U.S. I can see um, a world where we really took this problem seriously and, you know, phased out fossil fuels. I can see that. I'm not sure and I'm not enough of an expert that I can see uh, an alternative, you know, Chinese history where China develops into a industrial powerhouse that it is now 
uh, without burning a lot of coal. I'm not sure that that was possible. Um, so I just can't answer that one. Yeah. And, and I mean, in some ways, China's not to blame for this, right? Because the reason that China industrialized is because we asked them to make all of our stuff for us. Well, I mean, I certainly don't think the Chinese are to blame for it. They industrialized the same way the US and, you know, Great Britain and Australia and New Zealand industrialized on the back of fossil fuels. Absolutely. Um, you know, I guess there'd be a debate about, we certainly offshored a lot of our emissions. I guess in the U.S., there'd be a lot of debate about whether we asked the Chinese, you know, to uh, to take all our manufacturing jobs away or whether they were just very successful at doing so. How's that? Yeah, no, that's a, a reasonable point. Um, so in uh, in that article, uh, we, we, you know, you were referencing James Hansen's work. Um, you also talked about three different scenarios uh, for where we go from here. So one is that um, the world brings down emissions pretty much immediately or starting starting immediately. Uh, two, um, that emissions continue to grow and we lock in um, a two-degree temperature increase uh, or more, um, but that develop, developed countries like the United States, New Zealand, Australia, Britain, and so on, adapt to the effects of those, but developing countries uh, sort of left to fend for themselves. And then your third scenario was around um, conflict. You know, essentially the global warming leads to a conflict that draws in both uh, developed and developing countries alike. At, at, at the moment, what's your sense of the likelihood of those, or which is the most likely scenario that you, that you think, uh, based on what you're currently saying, is likely to emerge? Well, that's 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 a really that's a really tough question. I mean, I think that I guess the one, you know, I might stop short of saying I I'm going to foresee global conflict, but I'm going to foresee um, a lot of the globe on the move, and you know, we're already seeing that to a certain extent. Sorry, uh, apologies. Um, to a certain extent, we're already seeing a lot of refugees around the globe. You know, I would not say that right now the, you know, majority of them, I wouldn't know what has prompted people to leave their, you know, home countries and head for Europe or head for the U.S. But I think there's increasing evidence that climate change is affecting, you know, people's ability, subsistence farmers around the world, their ability to just make a living feed their families, and that that is increasingly one of the motives for people to be on the move. And so I think that, um, you know, sometimes you you hear this equation that, which is very true, I'm not dismissing this in any way, that the people who are, you know, most responsible for the problem, which are those of us in the developed world, are going to, um, you know, that's inversely related to how much you're going to suffer from the problem, how much you're responsible for it. But I think that in a globalized world, and I, I think that's true and something we need to be very aware of, but I also think in a glo globalized world like the one we live in right now, as COVID certainly showed us, um, it's naive to think that there are not going to be repercussions all around the globe uh, for destabilizing large parts of the world in um in your most recent book under a white sky 
uh, you talk a lot about geoengineering um, experiments. Uh, so uh, for people who haven't heard that phrase before, what is geoengineering? Well, geoengineering um, is one of those really ill-defined terms, to be honest, but I think it's come to mean, it's coming to mean uh, some kind of intervention uh, in the either cloud formation or the atmosphere in general, the stratosphere, that has an effect, has a cooling effect, sort of counteract climate change. And the particular brand of climate, of geoengineering that I talk about in the book most uh, thoroughly is, is, is sometimes called solar geoengineering. And so what you would do in that case is you would put something up in the stratosphere, some kind of reflective material. Uh, it could be sulfur dioxide. It could potentially be calcium carbonate. Uh, if the suggestion was made to me, it could be diamond dust uh, that's reflective that reflects sunlight back to space. And basically you're just, you know, preventing a certain amount of sunlight from hitting the earth and you're cooling the earth. And the reason that we know that this works in theory uh, is because volcanoes do it. When you get a big volcanic eruption uh, like Mount Pinatubo in 1991, scientists were watching that very carefully measured the cooling effect. And that was because volcanoes spew a lot of sulfur dioxide. It forms these little reflective droplets. You get these great sunsets after a big eruption and you get a cooling effect that lasts until those that material drops out of the stratosphere. So we could try to mimic volcanoes. That's, that's solar geoengineering. Now, that seems like an astonishingly bad idea. <laughs> you think so? Okay. Well, I'm curious. You know, yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a very, uh, I, I, I believe I quote in the book, I believe I quote Tim Flannery, who I'm sure many of your listeners yeah. are familiar with Tim's great work, uh, who called it a broad highway to hell. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so that's how would you characterize your book then? Is it is it a, a, a warning that we should avoid those kinds of solutions or are we kind of beyond beyond that? Now we're at the kind of, hey, we need to think about some pretty radical stuff. Well, I think the book um, hovers in between those two possibilities. It's uh, you can read it as a warning. And I think that's a very fair reading. Or you can read it as, uh, well, this is the worst possible option, except for all the other possible options. Um, and both, I think, are fair readings. And both honestly are true. I mean, it's like a crazy, absolutely insane idea that no one would advocate, including the people who are advocating it now who are not insane people by any stretch of the imagination, you know, very, very smart people, uh, except for, for the options. The other options are not, oh, everything's, you know, just hunky dory. The other options are you may face a time and in the not very distant future, uh, when you're facing a humanitarian disaster and what are the tools or an ecological disaster. And we have very, very few tools and no one knows this better than you do. We have very few tools to address that. We have no tools. You know, even if you say, okay, well, tomorrow we're stopping carbon emissions, that doesn't stop climate change. No, and that, and that's something I'm, I'm curious to explore with you because the, you know, putting diamond dust or sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere and so on doesn't actually reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It just shields no. you from some of the effects. 
if you could carry it off with no consequences, which is why I say it seems like a bad idea. Because <laughs> I, you know, anything at that at that scale, given human history, suggests that probably there will be side effects, uh, and you're not going to find that out until after you've kind of done it. But uh, there are there are kind of emerging uh, technologies. Um, for drawing carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere and storing it again. So people talk about direct air carbon capture. Um, uh, and, and you know, my reading of where things are at is currently that's quite expensive. Uh, there's only kind of half a dozen experimental places around the world. Uh, the cost per tonne of sequestration is about $1,000 as opposed to about 10 to $20 to plant trees, uh, you know, which is again, a technology that's pretty, we know, we know about. Um, uh, but as with any kind of industrial process, you know, you start building it out, the cost comes down, you get to a certain amount of scale, you know, you could see a very dramatic decrease in the, in the cost, just the same way that we've seen dramatic decreases in the cost of, uh, wind or solar electricity generation, you know, which has come down by just, remarkable orders of magnitude in a very short period of time. What's your assessment of, of that, of that field of technology? Cause that, that, that seems kind of a safer route is to actually try and take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere rather than just, you know, keep doing what we're currently doing, put it up, but build some kind of golden bubble around ourselves. <laughs> well, I, I, I do want to say on behalf of, you know, once again, I want to be I want to be fair to everyone um, and say that, you know, the people who are looking at geoengineering and looking at, you know, thinking about it would say, well, you need you need all you may you may you may need all of these things. Right. You need to radically reduce emissions. You need to draw CO2 out of the air. And you may also in that time of maximum danger, which we can hope is in the next few decades um, or the next several decades, let's say, you may still find that you want, need, want to counteract some of the warming that's baked in. Um, now, that being said, you know, carbon dioxide removal is, as you say, a big, a big field, a growing field because of the, once again, dawning realization that we need it. We've already uh, basically, in a way, committed to it. Um, if you look at the IPC scenarios for keeping uh, warming under two degrees C, most of them have some carbon dioxide removal, and some of them have a lot of carbon dioxide removal. So, you know, the scenarios are something we could discuss too. They're complicated and you can argue about how realistic they are. But I think that the math is becomes extremely punishing. If you say we want to keep, uh, you know, average global temperature under two degrees and we don't want to do any carbon removal, then the schedule for getting to zero just gets pushed back a few decades. So we're really, you know, pushing up against it right now. Um, now that being said, you know, I visited part of the book takes place in Iceland. I visited a project, you know, where they were pulling CO2 out of the air and burying it deep underground in Iceland's um, volcanic soil. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there are parts of New Zealand where you could do this. Uh, and, um, 
it was mineralizing into calcium carbonate. It was reacting with the rock. And that I think is, um, we're going to be hearing more and more about it. As you say, the cost problem is really prohibitive. The energy problem, it takes energy. It was being done in Iceland at a geothermal plant. So it was a pretty clean energy, but there's a big energy cost to it. Um, And there's, there is just the scale problem. So this project at that I was visiting in Iceland after I left, it was really tiny when it was there. It was like the size of a house, basically. Now it's getting to be much bigger. They're adding a lot of units. These units look like kind of fat air conditioners. And they are going to pull out 4,000 tons a year. Okay. And we emit 40 billion tons. So, you know, you do the math. There's just not, they're just not efficient enough. And they're not, uh, you know, do you want an infrastructure? You know, we can we can multiply 4000 to get to 40 billion um, where, you know, every every street corner has one of these and then you need to store it. The storage is a a huge issue. Uh, So it's not easy to do on a big scale. Um, It may be what we need to do for those tail end of emissions that we have a really hard time imagining getting rid of like concrete, just make CO2 in the process of making concrete. But it, I don't think it relieves a lot of the pressure on us to, um, you know, just get the CO2 out of our energy systems. It, it's, it's kind of a, I, I don't know how fast costs can come down. It's a really interesting question, what the sort of limitations are, but I think it's going to remain kind of a luxury item for for quite some time. Yeah, that was that's my assessment, and and I don't think that we should have any excuse for uh, delaying any further the action to stop putting this stuff into the atmosphere in the first place, right? I mean, that's that's obviously the the first port of call. But I had this realization, you know, a few years ago, where you know you're looking at the parts per million, right? So pre pre-industrial revolution kind of somewhere in the vicinity of 260 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now we're at you know kind of we've passed 420 um just the other day yeah yeah and 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 so that's almost a doubling uh in uh in in that period of time and so even if you were to stop immediately putting any more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere anywhere in the world, right, which we know isn't going to happen, you've still got a stock up there that's, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100% more than it was during the industrial revolutions, and that's going to continue warming. So you've you've got to get it out of the atmosphere. And, and you know, there are some tensions here in, in New Zealand where kind of people in the farming community are pushing back against the afforestation that's going on because, you know, farmers are some farmers are actually making more money from from creating carbon sinks through forestry than they are from farming, um, and so it's incentivizing that land use change. But you know, that's the argument is being made that that'll have an impact on food security at some point, right? Because if you plant up all your farmland, you know, you go to the kind of logical extreme of that argument you plant up all of your farmland yes you'll be pulling co2 out of the atmosphere but also where are you going to get your food from so the so those sort of tensions are starting to emerge here absolutely i think that that is sort of the next you know once you say um 
yeah, we all agree, you know, we need to get on the same page and we all agree we need to move forward, then new problems, unfortunately, and that gets to this idea that this is actually a really quite difficult problem. There's going to be, I think, tremendous tensions, a lot of um, proposed uh, measures to, you know, ameliorate climate change, let's not say solve it, have really serious land use uh, issues. You know, solar farms have huge land use issues. We're going to get into that in the southwestern U.S., you know, um, where there's a lot of sun. So that's the good news. Um, But, you know, people utility scale solar is a big it's not like um, a little thing, you know, that you don't notice. It's it's, you know, many, many, many hectares of solar panels. uh, And often the place to do it is, you know, a pretty untouched um, part of the world, like the Mojave Desert, you know, not that many people live there, but something's living there, you know, so there's going to be um, those tensions, I think, are going to come to the fore more and more as we do move forward. And as you say, there are no, you know, I think we have to be willing to face up to the fact that, you know, there's no, there's no simple solution here. It's not like, well, we'll just put up a couple solar panels and a couple windmills and, and we'll be done. It's, massive construction and 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 massive potentially massive reforestation and all there are implications all all along the way um did you read kim stanley robinson's recent book yes the ministry for the future yes i did yeah because he opens i mean obviously that the opening chapter about the mass heat death in india is harrowing and 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 you know, it's probably the strongest chapter in the book, actually, because it's it really puts you in that horrendous experience. But then his, you know, hypothetical Indian government response, which is solar geoengineering, which they yeah. just take it upon themselves to do, right? And kind of they say, bugger it to the rest of the world's governments. We need to do this because our people are dying en masse in these heat waves. And and so I'm I'm just, I'm wondering about these tensions that you're just talking about, about, you know, not just land use change, but uh, you know whether the solutions to climate change themselves end up becoming a, co- a a source of conflict. Yeah, and I mean we see that over and over again. I mean, I mean the beginning of the Ministry for the Future, where India just does its own solar geoengineering. You know, I I I'm not sure that's realistic, you know, to be in a geopolitical sense, to be honest, not that science fiction has a, an obligation to be realistic, but it, um, first of all, you know, if, if the U S or the Soviet union or China or whatever, doesn't want you to do it, you know, they have a pretty good air force and they're not going to just let you do it. Um, but that is glossed over in the book and that's fine. But the other thing that is, um, you know, geophysically not quite uh, accurate, I don't think, is it's a sort of a temporary fix. And that, you know, is not how it works. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, once you start geoengineering, when you stop it, the heat that you have masked, that effect, as as, as you were describing before, you're not really solving the problem, you're just masking the effects, that all manifests itself. You know, so if you did geoengineering for five years, then at the end, the world would just be hotter. You know, when you stopped it, the world would just be, you know, that much hotter. So that part of it also, I think, glossed over some pretty, you know, nasty (laughs) uh, facts on the ground. But 
it certainly raised a lot of interesting issues. And it gets to that point that, you know, that we were discussing, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, whatever your politics are and whatever concerning Robinson's politics are, you know, I think everyone would agree that, you know, millions of people dying is, 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 you know, not an acceptable, um, is a humanitarian crisis. And that, and his response in that book was, well, we're going to do geoengineering. What are our options? You know, and that is, I think, a, a very sobering, you know, and, uh, interpretation of things. Now on a smaller scale, you know, a less, uh, world war three ish kind of scale. Cause I think that could potentially start world war three. Um, you know, we have the EU has, for example, declared that, biomass is carbon free, right? You know, you, you can just account for it as if it's zero carbon. Now, accounting tricks are one of the bane of, you know, climate politics, just tricks that don't really solve the problem. And this one is um, leading to a lot of deforestation in the southeastern U.S. because, you know, biomass has to come from somewhere. It's coming from tree plantations in the southeastern U.S. They, you know, grow them, chop them down, ship the wood pellets to uh, the EU. And, and you know, I think many scientists would say that's not really carbon neutral, you know. So we are going to have all of these all along the way, what, you know, seem like solutions or what look like solutions like biomass, uh, there are a lot of ramifications. Um, I guess it raises questions around uh, governance. Yes, absolutely. You know, then just about the accounting uh, tricks in the international frameworks, um, which I have to say is, uh, climate change minister for New Zealand are driving me up the wall uh, at the moment because uh, there's a a 30 year history here which um, you know we as an individual sovereign country we've only there's only so many levers that we can pull because it is a global framework right and you know we have obligations to report under these frameworks and yet some of them just honestly make no sense at all that I can discern. Yeah, um, no, there's a lot of that. So what, where, where do you think that needs to go? Because I, I, I mean, my, look, I've, I've been in the negotiations for the last three conferences of the parties, uh, the UNFCCC conferences, um, and I've been an observer on maybe three before that. And it is, it, look, I used to be a management consultant before I got into politics. And, you know, so we were always thinking about that the, quality of the decision that you make is almost entirely a function of the quality of the process by which you make it. And if you wanted to design a process for making global decisions about how to stop climate change, you would not design the current UN system for doing it. I mean, it is a kind of goat rodeo. Yeah. No, you could argue that this system is designed to make sure nothing happens. Um, and it's done a pretty good job of that. Um, because how do you get, I forget how many countries there are today, but 193 countries who have very diverse in, interests, some of whom are, you know, their entire national, you know, sovereign wealth depends on selling fossil fuels, uh, and some of whom have no fossil fuels. They don't, they don't have, you know, the same interests, obviously. And it's become, you know, I've never been to a cop, I'll be frank, uh, and I, I don't regret that. Um, but I know, you know, the stories and it's very easy for, 
nations, some nations of, of ill intent, and they will remain nameless, but to, you know, uh, ally themselves with, with the least developed nations who are, you know, have a very, um, under justifiable, you know, um, uh, grievances against the developed world, you know, and you get a lot of bedfellows who, you know, don't really have the same interests, but, um, it can just gum up the works and has gummed up the works for a long, long time. And the U S has also, I want to say as an American been a bad actor has for the last four years, you know, also, um, done its best to delay progress. Um, so many people feel that the COP process is broken. The, the problem is, and it's a little bit like, you know, geoengineering, it's the worst process, it's the worst that we have except for all others. We just don't have another one, you know, and I think that coming up with, you know, if someone could come up with, uh, and here's a new career for you, uh, you know, a different way of approaching this. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're going to cut emissions in a serious way, there only there actually are only a few players that who really need to cut their emissions, and you know that's the EU, that's the US, that's China, uh, that's India. Increasingly, um, you know those are the biggies. If you got them to do it, then the rest would fall into place. You don't really actually need everyone else to be at the table, but. Um, so that's that's another possibility, I suppose. Well, there's yeah, there's there's one thing there about decision making. I mean, I I have this uh, dispute all the time in New Zealand because we account for zero point two seven percent of global emissions, right? That we're an absolute minnow uh, in terms of total output um, yeah. per capita. Uh, we're one of the highest, right? We rank yeah. right up there with the US and Canada, and you know the yeah. EU and and Australia yeah. and, and others. Um, and, and so, and we're a developed country, uh, hence the high emissions. Uh, and we've profited off that for, you know, a hundred, uh, plus years. So people, but people then say, well, you know, given how tiny we are, why should we do anything? And, and my response to that is, well, New Zealand has the same population size as Los Angeles. So are you saying that Los Angeles shouldn't do anything? Right, because it because it's too small to make a difference by itself. And if you're saying that Los Angeles shouldn't do anything, are you also saying that Chicago shouldn't do anything, that New York shouldn't do anything, that Austin shouldn't do anything? Oh, by the way, the United States shouldn't do anything because it's composed of all of right. these, you know, small yes. units, right? Like actually, right. this requires us. You know, we need to be all in on this. And and the other thing is that if you add up all of the countries that each individually emit less than 1% of the global total. Collectively, we add up to a third, right? It's a third, yeah. it's 30% of the global total is small countries. So we kind of, you know, we need to act alongside everybody else. But, you know, it's just kind of like at the Security Council, you're right, there's sort of half a dozen major players here. My experience of the international negotiations is that when they agree, you get movement, you get things like the Paris Agreement happening because largely because the US and China got their act together and said, hey, we'll do a deal and that will underpin everything else. And then on top of that, you had, you know, the, the EU and and particularly the French leadership and diplomacy that helped to make it all happen. But, you know, that was kind of a 
the key to making it work. Um, so there's already a kind of a model for that in the Security Council. Uh, that doesn't map on perfectly to what the big, big emitters are, but there's, there's quite a lot of overlap uh, there. Yeah, and I, I do think that your point about per capita emissions is is important. I mean, there are two standards to users aggregate emissions that, you know, happen, you know, New Zealand just happens to be a small country with a high per capita emissions. And I think that um, that does confer, even though, you know, New Zealand could, uh, you know, be wiped off the map and we'd still have a carbon problem, um, it does um, impose some, you know, ethical obligations. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I also think that, you know, and New Zealand definitely being, you know, part of the developed world, whatever happens, I mean, the theory, the happiest scenario here, right, is that, you know, the New Zealands of the world, the Australias of the world, Australia's also, I would argue, you know, a pretty bad actor in the climate world. Um, you know, it, the China, China and even to a certain extent, India, which is, you know, very rapidly developing, but you um, offer some alternative, you know, path to development that is not heavily fossil fuel reliant. We have yet to come up with that path, but you offer that path and that will be embraced that, you know, why are countries following the same model? Because that's the only model that we that we have put out there. Um, and that you could argue it is really incumbent on the rich nations of the world to come up with that model. We can't really expect the least developed nations uh, to come up with that. Can I just take you in a, a different direction for a moment? Um, one of the things that I was quite interested in, you, you had a Yale uh, Environment 360 article, um, and you were talking about something that I'd never heard this phrased this way before, assisted evolution. That sounds like something that we should do to humans. <laughs> that's a brilliant idea, except they have a really long gestation time, so that's a problem. Uh, for assisting human evolution. Um, so the phrase assisted evolution is a, um, was come up with, created by two scientists um, who were working on a coral project. One is, one is a Dutch, but working in Australia, and one was English, but working in Hawaii. And they had came up with this idea that, you know, coral reefs, as I'm sure you know, New Zealanders know are in really bad trouble, the Great Barrier Reef's in really bad trouble. And, you know, the water's going to continue to warm for the foreseeable future. That's kind of locked in already to a certain extent. And, um, you know, if we want reefs to survive this century, their thinking is, well, we're going to have to go in and you know, assist them, assist them to evolve more quickly than they would just on their own. And, you know, there's a lot of debate in scientific circles as to whether this is even possible. Um, but that's the idea. They came up with this phrase, assisted evolution. And that piece that you're alluding to, I went to visit a really interesting um, group in, uh, in the outback of Australia called Arid Recovery. And what they were doing there, and I know that there's a lot of work in New Zealand um, along similar lines, these 
exposures, right, where you try to fence off very, you know, large parts. And in that case, they were trying to keep out foxes and cats who are really wrecking havoc, you know, somewhat different from your, your avian fauna is getting hammered there, marsupial fauna is getting hammered. And the idea was if you could slowly introduce, you know, a single cat or a single fox into one of these exclosures, you would be putting selective pressure on those animals to learn fast how to avoid predators. And maybe over time, you could evolve basically smarter marsupials. Um, You know, is that possible or not? We don't know, but it's an interesting idea. And it is, it does have interesting um, implications for New Zealand as well, because, um, you know, you all have tried to take the, you know, predator-free route. And that's, you know, as you know, really, really hard. So this, this was an alternative idea. This is, we're never going to be predator-free. Can we, um, sort of give our prey species um, more time to sort of adapt. Um, once again, scientifically unproven, but an interesting idea. Do you have a sense of whether it's going to play out? I'm just a bit well, like a bit like diamond dust in the sky. Uh, yeah, it's like one of those interventions that we make to try and fix up an earlier intervention that we made that just. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the introduction of, I mean, if you really want to look at drivers of extinction um, right now in the world we live in right now, uh, introduce species, especially on islands. And, you know, this would certainly count, I guess, you know, in New Zealand counts as, as two islands and also all of your offshore islands. Uh, those are the big drivers of ex- that's that's really still the number one driver of extinction, um, I believe, at this moment. And the question of of what to do f- for some very very uh, you know species that have a very small range, they may be restricted to one island. Those rats on that island are going to do it in, or those cats. Um, you know, are there innovative ways? You know, besides dropping poison from helicopters to try to deal with that. And another, you know, chapter of um, my latest, you know, the, my latest book, Under White Sky, deals with questions of, of this idea of gene drive. You know, can we create um, rodents, in this case rodents, um, that would eventually sort of do themselves in? They would only produce male offspring and eventually the population would crash. And I think that's a really, you know, once again, gene drive, is an extremely controversial and really potentially very dangerous technology, but also potentially a very powerful way to deal with a really big problem. So all of these, you know, big problems, risky solutions, that's sort of the theme of our time. Yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of controversy around that here in New Zealand. One of the issues uh, around gene drive is, you know, you might be able to get your head around it for rats. Um, when it comes to possums, which are an introduced species from Australia, who are catastrophic in terms of the effect that they have on our indigenous biodiversity in New Zealand, they are an endangered species in Australia. Uh, and so yeah. if we were to produce, you know, a, uh, a, a, you know, a possum that 
only gave birth to male offspring and eventually, you know, they basically breed themselves out of existence. Uh, what happens if some of those get translocated to Australia? Uh, and then we're responsible for the extinction of an indigenous <laughs> animal yeah. in Australia. You know, I mean, it, yes, no, they immediately raises, you know, you don't have to have a very lurid imagination to foresee disaster. Um, you know, that being said, there are, you know, once again, really smart people looking at it and trying to figure out whether there would be, I mean, one idea, and this is very technically difficult, demanding, it's just demanding. Um, could you yoke a gene drive um, to a variant, a genetic variant that is only present um, on an island, for example, in a rodent population on an island? Now, I suspect that, you know, the possum population in New Zealand is too genetically diverse to for that to be possible. <laughs> um, but you could imagine it for very small scale eradications. You could imagine it. I'm not advocating it, but you could imagine it. Um, you mentioned before about, I mean, you did kind of hint at US politics, and it would probably be remiss of me not to ask. Um, President Biden recently released the American Jobs Plan. Uh, allocating $174 billion to uh, transition to electric vehicles. Um, that's, uh, I know those are US dollars, but that would be um, probably close to our entire GDP <laughs> uh, in cash terms. Um, $35 billion for research and emissions reducing and climate resilient technologies, $10 billion uh, for a New Deal style civilian climate core. Uh, and um, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies to pay for it. That seems, from an outsider, uh, you know, admittedly, I haven't kind of been able to get into the detail of the plan, but that seems like a pretty good start. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot in the plan. I mean, it's a two trillion dollar plan. It's a big, big plan. Um, I think there's a lot in it that's 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 laudable. Um, we are. You know, still very much. You can't get into the details of it, to be honest, because they don't exist. Um, so we're, on the one hand, still waiting to see a lot of the details, and then we're waiting to see the process. You know, um, by which this legislation, you know, which is often compared to, you know, you don't want to see how sausage is made, and you don't want to see how this bill will get you know, mauled, but um, we're waiting to see what will come out of the legislative process. So, you know, I think there are a lot of good things in the bill. I don't think that, you know, it's not, I don't think it's really, a, it's not quite a game changer, even if it were to all pass. Um, but there's a lot in there that would certainly move the needle in the right direction. I mean, what one of the Again, from from an outsider's perspective, one of the things that uh, seems to be happening is um, these kind of depending on who the administration is, you get quite big swings and roundabouts in policy. Uh, and there's a tension here, I guess, um, because uh, here in New Zealand, uh, we have tried to forge uh, at least some level of bipartisan consensus about the long term. Uh, kind of direction of travel um, because you're talking about major changes in 
investment patterns and technology and so on. And so the lifetime of one government is, you know, six to nine years in our political system. Uh, and, and you really, you know, the private sector have got to kind of do the heavy lifting on this, can't really afford to make major bets if they think that, you know, six years from now, another government's going to come in and change all the settings, right? So, you know, we've tried to do that. But the corollary of that is that there's a certain amount of compromise that has to get baked in in order to bring the other side along. Uh, and and the big question is, does that compromise mean that we're not going to actually do what's like the scientific minimum required to stay within within the temperature goal? So you can compare that experience to, you know, the US experience, which is, you know, the nature of it is that the presidency has uh, executive authority and so on. And I know that that's severely limited by, you know, Congress and the Senate. But what's what's your sense of the kind of political environment and whether those compromises are worth making or you should just kind of place your bets and hope that it all works out in the long run? Well, I think that, you know, it's a really interesting question. I think that's a really interesting question, and a re- it's a really interesting time in American politics if you have a strong stomach. And I think that what, you know, the consensus is, or not consensus, but the feeling is, you know, look, you know, Obama tried to be the consensus, you know, tried to do, you know, incremental change and he, you know, look, you got, as a result, you, he got less and less and the Senate flipped and the house flipped and it was, um, and now you really need to just, you have two years here until we have another congressional election. This is getting a little bit inside baseball of American politics, but, you know, go big, just do whatever you can in those two years because you do not know what's going to happen. Now, the problem is, as you suggest, that that leaves you open to this, you know, whiplash effect. And I think that a lot of businesses in the U.S. have um, always found it to be um, pretty easy to just wait out. Well, you don't like this administration, we'll just wait it out. You know, we'll just litigate We'll sue them. We'll wait it out, and next one will, you know, be more favorable to our goals. And I think, you know, the test, honestly, of whether people believe um, in that change is coming is going to be if you see changes in investment patterns, if you see the big, you know, big corporate America starting to 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 shift its bets and. To a certain extent, I I will say I do think that is happening, Um, but I'm not enough of a sort of insider watching where money's flowing, you know, um, to tell you whether it's hard to get a loan to, you know, I can tell you it's hard to get a loan to start a new coal mine. Is it hard to get a loan, you know, to do oil drilling? Probably harder and harder. It probably is harder and harder. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed, I mean, there are not very many of these stories, but uh, here there was a story recently about a coal mining company, uh, and it's not that they couldn't get a loan, it's that they couldn't get a bank account, you know, that they they actually were struggling to get a a New Zealand bank even to allow them, and you know, this is a multi-million dollar operation, right? I mean, it's it's a decent-sized company, but their previous banker had said, actually, you know what, Um, 
we don't want your business anymore. And, and they were kind of shopping around and, and didn't look like there were any takers. Now, there's only about six banks in New Zealand, so it doesn't take long to shop around. Um, but, but you are seeing that. And at the same time, on the flip side, you're seeing the kind of growth of the green bond market and so on. And big global operators like BlackRock are, you know, getting quite activist in their kind of shareholder resolutions and so on. So I get a sense that that's there. But, but I guess the concern is for those companies, not the ones that are kind of fighting against climate action, but the ones who want to start to make those alternative investments is that they may not, they may, you know, even with the best will in the world be, they may be reluctant to make those if they think the political environment is going to change only a few years down the track. And so you kind of get stymied kind of in both environments. No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I think electric cars in the U.S. are very good, just, uh, you know, example, right? I mean, are we going to make this transition or not? Now, if we are going to make this transition, then, you know, gas stations should, the value of a gas station, right? I should basically not be able to sell my gas station because in 15 years, it would be essentially worthless. Um, You know, are we going to see that? Are people really making that bet? Or are they hedging their bets? Um, I don't think we know yet. You know, um, there's a lot of talk, but, you know, as you know, as we say in the U.S., you know, money talks um, and and so watch the money. And I definitely I'm not enough of an expert, you know, to tell you what you can get for your chain of gas stations right now. But to me, that will be the telling thing. Do people really believe that we're transitioning away from, you know, in the internal combustion engine will be, you know, are is anyone buying a gas station? Well, I, I uh I've been thinking about this recently because um, there's a gas station not terribly far from Parliament, which has been converted into an office building. It's been, you know, it's no longer a gas station. They're building a, a, a tall uh, office building. And it occurred to me that the value of the land uh, is worth way more, you know, as, as an office building than as a gas station. Um, and we have a real housing crisis and access to land is one of the key reasons for that. Um, and so in a compressed urban environment, you know, with land prices going up and up, I'd, I'd, I'd maybe wonder at what point do their um, board of directors say, actually, we could make more money for our shareholders by building houses or apartment blocks instead of continuing to sell, you know, Coca-Cola, mince pies and petrol. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't seem like a, a terribly hard equation Uh to make. Um, Elizabeth, what are your reasons for hopefulness? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I do, I do think to the extent that I, you know, have any reasons for hopefulness, it is that, um, you know, I'm in here sitting here in the U S and I do see U S politics changing. The conversation is changing. Um, I don't think we're by any stretch uh, there yet. But, you know, if we had had this conversation a year ago when Donald Trump was president and possibly being reelected, then I, I would. A lot of people said, you know, it was sort of it was sort of game over at that point. Um, that did not happen. I'm very, very happy to say. Um, and so that is one, uh, you know, bit of hopefulness to offer. And another bit, you know, you described how 
Paris was really the result of um, a deal between the Americans and the Chinese. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, John Kerry, um, who's Biden's climate envoy, is in China right now. They obviously realize, you know, it's up to the U.S. and China to really lead on this issue. And, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they can come up with something um, that's uh, really significant. I uh, spoke to John Kerry a few weeks ago. Um, after his appointment. And I I have to say, I took that as a very hopeful sign because, you know, for the US to appoint such a senior statesperson into that role, uh, who not only is senior in his own right, but also was the Secretary of State at the time that the Paris Agreement went through. So he was involved in that. Um, and And I guess from the Chinese perspective, you know, he knows all the people. He's been around. Uh, you know, they're all on, well, they're probably not on first name basis. They, they wouldn't use their first <laughs> They're on first name basis. Uh, really. uh, you know, it, that, that that sort of suggests, hey, we're serious, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And he, you know, I think it also speaks, um, it's it's important and impressive that he was willing to take the job. You know, it's it's not... It's, it's like a demotion in a way. He's not secretary of state anymore, um, but he feels that it's important enough for him um, to, to take on, you know, very you know, late in his career after having done a lot of other things. Um, so that's, I think, also a sign. And, and, you know, within the administration, you know, a lot of the names won't mean anything to people outside the U.S., but they are big names and very, very smart and committed people. I, I think that the team that Biden has assembled, um, you know, and I don't, um, I don't hand out praise like this very readily as a journalist is, is first class. They really are first class people. Um, they know what it takes to get something done. It doesn't mean they can, it doesn't mean they're great politicians, but they, they know what it would mean to get something done. Well, there's a lot of work to do. Exactly. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the generosity uh, of spirit that you've shown. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Well, thank you. It was really it was really a pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Hope to get back to Wellington one day. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Elizabeth for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next time, I will be speaking to former speechwriter and national security advisor to President Obama, Ben Rhodes. I'll see you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.